Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Welcome back, of course, to This Pathological Life, and uh, with me, Dr. Travis Brown, who is considered royalty in the realm of pathology, talking of blue blood. (laughs) We're about to learn, of course, that is not quite something you want. So I've got a question to Uh, start with you, Steve. Not another one. Okay. Yep. So, (laughs) if you had a chance of total power... Oh, yep. You have... Mansions, money, servants, Mm -hmm. dictatorial rule over the country. However, Ah. your family lineage has a hereditary bleeding disorder. Right. That 50% of your daughters will be carriers Mm -hmm. and 50% of your sons will have the full-fledged disease. And you have... About a quarter chance of a very violent death. Mm-hmm. Would you go for it? Oh, it's car trips with you and your family must be absolute joy. Uh, would I create progeny is what you're asking me. Let me even, even give you a little bit more detail. So five of your 20 yes. relatives right. have had a violent death, assassinations, murder, mm-hmm. whatever. But... When you were the age of 13, mm-hmm. you even saw your grandfather die. He was riding in a carriage one day, mm-hmm. and it was a bomb-proof carriage. A gift from the emperor, the Napoleon III from France, and some assassins threw a bomb that exploded. But when he opened the door to inspect the damage, there was a second assassin person who threw the bomb into the carriage. So what's the question? Would you take this up? Oh, uh... It's hard to find a good holiday location and having a few palaces around is, uh, is attractive, but no, I wouldn't. This just seems all downside to that life. Who are we talking about? So we're talking about the Romanov family. So that is Russian royalty. Mm-hmm. So the story we have starts in 1912. This is a 300-year-old dynasty. The Tsar, Tsarina. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicholas II and Alexandra, whose whose name is Hesse, if I'm saying that right, uh, who's of German descent. Now, this is royal lineage. Alexandra is a descendant from Queen Victoria. Hmm. So royalty being royalty at this time, often you're, you're marrying other royalty. The problem with that is... A small gene pool. Exactly. Hmm. So Nicholas II and Alexandra, uh, I believe on one side is second cousins. And on the other side, they are third cousins. Right. Queen Victoria, we know now, has a bleeding disorder called the royal disease. It's haemophilia. So that's a bleeding condition where you have one of the factors, what we talk about. So it's called a coagulation cascade. And one of the factors is low, meaning that if you have a whole bunch of 
let's say, dominoes, but one of the dominoes is tiny. It may not fall and hit the next one to cause that clot to form. Mm -hmm. She has that in her gene pool. It's X-linked, meaning that people have 22 paired chromosomes and one pair of sex chromosomes. Mm -hmm. And an XX makes a female gender, and XY makes a male gender. This abnormality is on one of the X chromosomes. Now, if you're a woman, you have another X chromosome that compensates for it and you get enough of the factor to go through that cascade. Right. However, men only have one X, meaning that if the mother passes on the wrong X, the son will be affected. As far as we can tell, Nicholas II and Alexandra are a royal family that seems genuinely in love, a love story with a family. They have four daughters named Olga, Tatiana, Marie, and Anastasia. Mm -hmm. Royalty being royalty, you need a son to be the heir of this time. And they have their fifth child is Alexei. He is a son. At this time, he is aged eight. The problem is that he has inherited the mutated X chromosome from his great-grandmother, Queen Victoria. And how uh, would that be um, noticeable at this point in history? So for him, even the slightest bump mm -hmm. could cause a bruise, but that bruise in normal people will just be normal, not a problem. But in him, it's extensive. Mm. Not only that, it can be very painful, it can become very unwell, and if it's large enough, can even be life-threatening. So the other thing to note about Alexei is he is somewhat considered frail. And because of that, because we know people with haemophilia have a risk of bleeding into their joints, it's called hemarthrosis. And what ends up happening is blood goes into the joint, then congeals, causes a whole bunch of inflammation, causes erosion of the joint, and they become very painful and it becomes destructive. Now, this was a very big family secret because you can't have the heir of a throne seeming fragile or frail. But you can see photos of him where he's wheeled around on like a bicycle with a seat on the front because he had trouble walking. Enter a character by the name of Grigory Rasputin. Mm -hmm. Now, in 1912, he's been sent away from the royal family. He is known to history somewhat as the Mad Monk. He is a peasant, considered a mystic, claims to be a holy person. Although there's another side to that coin, isn't there? I exactly. He's also known for drunkenness. He can drink up to 12 bottles of wine per day. He is known as a womanizer and has scandalous behavior, which is just straight out affairs that are open but he end up having an audience in in 1904 with the czar and the czarina and they are quite taken by him mm -hmm. this is where we see a disease effectively change the course of history because what rasputin is associated with and what the czarina says and the czar is that somehow rasputin has this amazing healing power that when the, what we call the Tsarevich or the heir to the throne, Alexei, gets injured and is unwell, they'll have Rasputin praying and uh, by the bedside, and then the boy miraculously heals and gets better. And this is where he's such a, a vivid character, though, that he's mixed with all this bad stuff. But the problem is he seems to have an amazing ability to heal their child. Are we talking about causation or correlation? <laughs> 
Well, again, there's many, many theories as to how he did this. Probably the, the one that is the most uh, appealing to myself is that at that time in history, aspirin was actually considered a miracle cure. Now, the problem is aspirin affects platelets. If the doctors of the time are trying to heal this young boy with a bleeding disorder with aspirin, they're only going to make it worse. Now, Rasputin was clearly, his advice was get the doctors away from him. Throw their remedies into the fire. If he was genuinely saying that, then yes, he would probably be of benefit at that time. And the problem is these instances build up to this time in October of 1912 where... Alexei's playing at their, on a holiday, jumps into a rowboat, falls and hits his thigh mm-hmm. and gets a very large bruise that goes on through to his abdomen and he's very unwell for a week. Seems to be recovering and then his French tutor notices when clearly having a lesson that the young heir is pale and having difficulty walking. He notifies the mother, the Tsarina, and she thinks well, the best thing for him is to get some fresh air and some sunshine on a carriage ride. Right. The problem is the carriage ride is bumpy uh-huh. with the carriage lurching everywhere and he starts to get very uncomfortable and then starts crying in pain and in agony any time it bumps. And by the end of the ride when they're finished, he is almost unconscious with pain. For four days he's on deathbed and this is a child who believes he's dying and says... Mama, will the pain stop when I'm dead? And the family gets to the point where the Tsarina turns around and sends a telegram to Rasputin. And the response comes back. God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Miraculously, the boy recovered. So this is now a point where the peasant, mystic, holy man has somehow by telegram healed the boy. And in 1912, he is now firmly ensconced in the royal family. Arguably, he is an accelerant to the decline of the Tsar and the Tsarina to their fall in 1917. So he is the equivalent of people in power getting celebrities in with all their faddish um, healing theories. The whole point behind it is if he had just stuck to, you know, quote unquote, healing Alexei, we probably wouldn't be talking about him to this day. Hmm. However, he started involving himself in nation state affairs, in appointments, in power, in advice. And you can understand how that could happen. The Tsarina thinks that this is a, a, a man of God. He was not associated with the Russian Orthodox Church, and I'm sure just be very upset from, from their perspective that this you know, holy man was there. But you saw his influence, even bad influences, even sending the Tsar to the front with advice uh, of the, the war at that time, then left the Tsarina and Rasputin in an advisory role running the country. Uh, not a great recipe for success. And in fact, not a good end to that family, was there? No. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes history is, is very difficult. <laughs> the, the Russian war effort was going poorly for the Tsar and the Tsarina. They had dismal losses, effectively a bubbling Russian revolution, which came into full swing in March of 1917. The Bolsheviks at the time took the royal family into home arrest. He initially tried to abdicate the throne. Uh, He wanted to do that to his son Alexei, but clearly not in a position to do so. He tried to abdicate his throne to his brother Michael, but he refused it. They remained under 
house arrest for several months. But there's a problem in societies and nations when you keep a monarch around. So a conspiracy came about for him and his family to be executed. It's probably the nicest word for it. What happened was on the morning of the 17th of June, the family was awoken, taken down to the cellar. They were told that this was a a late night escape, even at the point where, you know, the Tsar carried down Alexei because, again, he's not not well. Alexandra asked for a seat and they gave it because she was not well. They also had their doctor with them, their footman, a maid, and uh, their chef. So they're all waiting in the cellar, and then uh, a man enters with uh, a note. The Presidium of the Regional Soviet, fulfilling the will of the revolution, has decreed that the former Tsar, Nicholas Romanov, guilty of countless bloody crimes against the people, should be shot. So 11 or 12 men then filled the room. They had muskets and a firing squad aimed and shot. The Tsar and the Tsarina uh, believed to have been shot in the, the head, but the problem for the children is they were all closed and had things like uh, jewels and, and diamonds sewn into their clothing, which we're not talking about modern mep- weaponry. These are muskets sort of... Uh, so they actually bounced off. Smoke filled the room, so they couldn't actually even see what was going on, so chaotic. Eventually, smoke cleared the room, but whoever was left alive was either shot, uh, clubbed, or stabbed to death. On that note, let's let the air clear and come back in just a moment to continue this bloody episode. Dr. Travis Brown, we've uh, had a colourful start to this episode with a very tragic story, but let's look historically now at inherited bleeding disorders. Where do we trace the roots to? So the the first instance we note of bleeding disorders is actually from a a Jewish text, the the Talmud, uh, which is a combination of the Mishnah and and Gemara uh, of the oral Orthodox Jewish tradition, uh, as well as a commentary around that, uh, written by rabbis. So what the, the rabbis noted is that if a son has been born who has had siblings, male siblings in the past, who then have circumcision and died due to bleeding, should not have circumcision themselves. Mm. So they recognize there must be a bleeding disorder passed down. And if you've had a sibling that died, you should not, therefore, have circumcision yourself. That's a big call in that culture. It, it, exactly. But we also have, uh, the, the, when we talk about the royal disease, hemophilia, we also have a disease that's sometimes referred to as Christmas disease. Now, when we look at hemophilia, we're breaking it down into kind of two types you have hemophilia a and hemophilia b and when we look at hemophilia b that is the one that goes through the royal uh, queen victoria lineage so royal disease it's also referred to as christmas disease why is that the reason is it's actually named after the 
a, a person who's called Stephen Christmas. So not anything to do with the holiday. Uh, in 1952, he was two years old and presented to hospital with this bleeding disorder. Now, at the time, pretty much you're given the diagnosis hemophilia. There's not much you can do other than saying needs to be careful. When he was the age of five, however, he was vid- visiting relatives in London and went to hospital with, again, a bleeding episode. The difference here is he turned up to a hospital that had a research laboratory. And there's two researchers that are credited with this, Rosemary Biggs and R.G. McFarlane. And what they found, they would have known that this patient had a diagnosis of haemophilia, but what they found is he had a normal factor 8, which is the haemophilia A disease, but had reduced factor 9. So does not fit with the normal haemophilia. They then termed it Christmas disease at that time, uh, and that's why we get the two naming uh, classifications with regards to that. Did Stephen end up having a a better outcome than Alexi? In a way. (laughs) The hard thing for bleeding disorders before this time was uh, you have a disorder, we know what it is, but there's not much we can do. Over time, what we found is you're able to get transfusion, so blood products and particularly plasma, which has coagulation factors in it, so that would compensate for the loss. So he received them. The problem with that is, again, in the 1980s, there wasn't known the disease HIV. (sighs) So he received transfusion products, ended up acquiring HIV, and in 1993... Uh, he died of AIDS-related illnesses. All right. Now, you've talked about the historical references to circumcision. We've talked about X and Y chromosomes. Are we really suggesting here that um, men are the main uh, participants of the population who suffer these bleeding disorders? So in in, in haemophilia, yes, it is. Uh, Mainly men because it's an X chromosome. Anytime something's sex-linked, men have one X chromosome chromosome therefore it's going to express what's ever on that x it can get a bit mixed in women when they've got two x's uh, and sometimes it can not show at all but in 1926 there was a, a finnish physician by the name of uh, dr eric von willebrand who published a paper about a group of disorders that appeared in a family that did not fit the normal X-linked haemophilia uh, case study. This was a a five-year-old girl who presented to Helsinki from Orland Islands uh, with a bleeding disorder. Now, with her, she was the ninth child of 12. Do we really want to know how this ends? (laughs) Well, we'll find out. The four of her siblings had died due to bleeding. Both of her parents had a bleeding disorder. And so, again, uh, he was well-read and he's gone, this does not fit. And he went to uh, Orland Islands and found that 23 of the 66 family members had a bleeding disorder. Now, that doesn't fit with the the X-linked, you know, one son, uh, 50% affected, and found out it was an autosomal dominant 
presentation, meaning that if you get the affected gene, so it's not X-linked, it's not anything to do with that. If you get the affected gene, you get the disease. And so he theorized that there must be a factor in the serum, and he believed something to do with the platelets that was causing this bleeding disorder. It was decades later that he was mostly right. We call it now von Willebrand factor, and it's a factor involved in protection of what we call factor eight, again. Uh, it protects it in circulation so it can be used. And there's also what we call a von Willebrand factor that helps bind platelets to what we call the subendothelium. So vessels, blood vessels are lined by endothelium. Underneath it, this factor helps platelet binds to it. And if that's exposed, it means there's been some injury. So these patients had a abnormality in this factor that caused them to bleed. We now know there's a whole subtype and this is where we get von Willebrand's disease from. And we might talk more to Dr. Nicholas Miles about that shortly. Tell me, just before we bring Nick in, are there any good outcomes to any of these stories? Historically, no, but we now have an understanding of these diseases. We have the ability to treat them and to manage them. So looking back, no, unfortunately, there was not much that could be done. But now we have treatments that can help people produce their own uh, factors. Uh, so yes, for now, but unfortunately, in the hist historically, it's, it's not. All right, let's get ready for the third part of this episode. Dr. Nicholas Miles will join us. Is, is Dracula a favourite character of yours? Oh, I can't. I can't say I've uh, read many, uh, no, many Dracula some, books. Yeah, so, uh, I only know Bram Stoker from the movies. We mentioned Dr. Nicholas Miles would be joining us. Uh, Nick is a haematologist at ClinPath and uh, has a speciality in bleeding disorders. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks. Great to be here. How common is bleeding disorders in in the community what will gps be be faced with yeah look i mean i think bleeding disorders in general is something that you know gps or you know general physicians encounter quite frequently um i think it's very common for people to present with you know, unexplained bruising or post-operative bleeding that may be out of context um so reasonably common presentation in saying that a lot of bleeding disorders, you know, won't be diagnosed as a specific haemophilia or von Willebrand's disease per se. Um, but, you know, uh, you know as, a, as a general presentation, I think it's, you know, incredibly common and, and something uh, in my clinical work, which I, I'm referred quite often. Taking haemophilia A, for example, the incidence of that in the community is, is approximately one in uh, five to 10,000. I guess across ethnic groups, there's no real variation, really. It's, mm -hmm. it's just as common in, in Caucasians as it is in Asians or you know, Africans, for example. Haemophilia B, uh, is the incidence is about uh, one in uh, 20 to 30,000, so about four times as uncommon as, um, as haemophilia A. In regards to haemophilia, uh, the, the severity um, also varies between the two diseases. So with haemophilia A, the more severe degrees of that uh, are, are very rare. So severe haemophilia A would only account for about 
five to ten percent of those diagnoses uh, of that group, um, whereas the the more mild to moderate forms account for the vast majority. With haemophilia B, it's a little bit different in that about 40 to 50% of people will actually have a severe phenotype with haemophilia B, so it's a little bit of difference there. Uh, Von Willebrand's disease is by far and away the most common inherited bleeding disorder in the community. The The estimates are, are fairly rough because it's a, it's a disorder that goes largely undiagnosed in, in a majority of people, um, and, that, and that's because the phenotype is usually less severe than in haemophilia. Uh, but uh, type 1 von Willebrand's disease has a has an estimated incidence of somewhere between 0.5 to 1% in the general community. And, and again, it's a, it's a disease that um, affects all ethnic groups equally. Is there any particular group that is at risk? Well, well certainly haemophilia being, uh, haemophilia A and B both being X-linked diseases, I mean, are obviously far more common in men, uh, you know, almost exclusively so. But in saying that, I mean, there can be... Uh, uh, you know, compound heterozygote women um, uh, who, who can manifest a bleeding type, uh, bleeding phenotype. So um, again, you know, it, it can be seen in women, um, and especially as as people age, uh, as women age, uh, the, the there is X inactivation, um, and so women who are hemophilia A or B carrier um, can manifest a bleeding phenotype as they as they become as they become older. Uh, in, in regards to von Willebrand's disease, I mean, this is a diagnosis that's made far more commonly in women uh, because uh, it manifests predominantly as menorrhagia, which is, uh, you know, often the, present, the main presenting complaint of uh, von Willebrand's disease in the community. So if someone, if a GP does come uh, have a patient that they think, okay, uh, they may have a bleeding disorder, is there any preliminary investigations that... I will look at preliminary and secondary, but preliminary investigations that will be useful uh, for, for a patient that they suspect might have a bleeding disorder. Yeah, uh, um, I guess before going into that, I think it's important to sort of, uh, you know, any, any investigation should be done in the context of the, of the symptoms. I mean, I mean that, that's clearly obvious. But in, in relation to bleeding disorders, it's, it's often important to use standardised tools to determine which people do actually require investigation. The bleeding tool that's most commonly used is the WHO uh, BAT or bleeding assessment tool, um, which we should, you, can just, you can just Google online and um, it's, a, it's a, just a checklist. Um, and um, the benefit of using these tools is that they have an excellent negative predictive value. Um, so if, if people do have a low bleeding score on that, then, then likely they fit within a normal you know, population phenotype. Um, and in that situation, further testing isn't usually warranted. Um, in, in people that do have more significant uh, uh, bleeding symptoms, I mean, certainly um, a, a reasonable screening reasonable screening investigations would be uh, extended coagulation studies, so including a APTT, a PT, and a D-dimer and a fibrinogen, uh, and, and also a, a standard CBE, uh, you know, basically just looking for the platelet count. Now, CBE, that's the full blood count, so just yes, make sure uh, people a, different a use them. Yeah. Yeah, a full blood count or <laughs> a, or a complete, yeah, complete yeah. blood examination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, certainly. Uh, when okay so that will probably cover then preliminary and secondary investigations that's probably when is it appropriate that a patient be referred for a hematologist for further either management or investigation because these disorders are, are rare um, and because the investigations for them um, are subspecialized um, I think it's reasonable for anybody who has you know a significant bleeding phenotype to be investigated and this includes women with significant menorrhagia it's quite common in my clinical practice that um, are diagnosed with von Willebrand's disease several years or, or decades after having you know uh, difficult to control menorrhagia um, so I guess it is something that's overlooked and 
you know, I think if there is a concern that, you know, a, a person is, is bleeding or bruising more significantly than would be expected, then it's quite reasonable to refer them on to a hematologist for an expert opinion. I would make the point as well that the screening investigations of a CBE and, and you know, the coagulation studies um, aren't always sensitive for the diagnosis um, uh, of of um, haemophilia or von Willebrand's disease, particularly given that our assays, uh, so the APTT in particular, is only sensitive uh, for a uh, factor eight or factor nine level less than 30%. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you may not pick up people with a more mild phenotype. Um, and again, um, on, with von Willebrand's disease, your, your platelet count, uh, your, your standard coagulation studies may not actually be abnormal. Yep, okay. Um, so, so I think, I guess the long and the short of that is that um, is that, you know, uh, normal screening investigations don't exclude the di- a diagnosis of these bleeding disorders. Okay. Any important red flags uh, for GPs or anyone to actually say, no, this is a little bit more serious than what we need sort of immediate either attention or investigation? Uh, is there anything that comes up that's that's a good red flag or, you know, to know about? In regards to haemophilia, I mean, unexplained, um, you know, soft tissue uh bleeding, so particularly, you know, large hematomas, a psoas uh, uh, hematoma, um, you know, prolonged bleeding after a surgical procedure. I mean, these are all these are all sort of red flags, I guess, to, to sort of consider that there may be something else underlying this. Um, keeping in mind that, you know, haemophilia A and B are generally diagnosed in childhood, the median age of diagnosis is is somewhere around um, 18 uh, months of age. Uh, so, you know, I think particularly in children, it's, it's important to have that as a consideration. Um, in, 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 in older, or in adults, um, you know, von Willebrand's disease, I mean, uh, I guess really in a situation post-operatively where there is unexplained bleeding, I guess that would be a, a particular red flag. It's also important to recognise that these diseases can be acquired um, as a result of um, autoimmune diseases as well. Um, and so unexplained, particularly severe bleeding in an older person with a very prolonged APTT should raise the consideration of an acquired haemophilia. Um, and, and that is a disease that has a very poor prognosis, uh, y- you know, without treatment. Um, it can be, rap- you know, it can have rapidly fatal hemorrhage. And so I guess, uh, again, you know, an unexplained, very prolonged APTT in someone who's elderly with potentially um, autoimmune uh, comorbidities, um, you know, that that would be a consideration there as well to sort of refer early. Uh, There is just one other question we haven't touched on in in this podcast, but with regards to platelet disorders, it's quite a difficult area to get your mind around that sort of platelets can be the right amount, but they might not be functioning correctly. Where does that fit in, in all of this? Yeah, so uh, I guess uh, platelet disorders is a whole, you know, area of hematology in itself. Um, and I, I guess it's important to say that these disorders are usually very rare. And, and I guess they can, they can be either congenital or, or acquired as a result of another, you know, hematological disease. Um, in, in regards to platelet disorders, I mean, usually, usually um, you know, they, these are inherited, you know, the vast majority of them are inherited. And that would include syndromes like uh, Glanzmann's uh, thrombosthenia, uh, bernard Sullius syndrome, MYH9 associated disorders. Um, and, and again, to, to diagnose these accurately, you really do need tertiary investigations at the, at the discretion of a, you know, you know, initiated at the discretion of a hematologist. Um, so again, these, these disorders will usually present with platelet type bleeding. So, you know, uh, mucosal bleeding, so recurrent epistaxis, um, gum bleeding, 
uh, menorrhagia, um, those sort of things. And they can be a diagnosis that is, that is delayed and misdiagnosed in, in many cases because often often these inherited platelet disorders, um, they can go along with the mild um, thrombocytopenia that can be misdiagnosed as a mild ITP, for example. Um, and so it may take several years for these things to crop up. Um, so really, the, the, the investigation of those is based on um, uh, various specialised, um, you know, uh, laboratory investigations of uh, platelet function. Um, and so really, if, if you do suspect a platelet disorder, it's probably something that you should be referring to a hematologist sooner rather than later. Um, you know, and, and often often genetic studies are required uh, to confirm a diagnosis in many cases. And then just one last point, uh, hemophilia A with my reading, about is it up to 30% can be new mutations or is, is, that, is that the right figure? I'm just trying to remember with my reading. Yes, no, that, that, is, that is correct. So approximately 30% of uh, people diagnosed with haemophilia A won't, um, you know, there won't be a proband identifiable in their, in their family. Um, and, and I guess that's, um, that's sort of an important point to make because, you know, just because somebody doesn't have a family history of a bleeding disorder, um, you know, you should still suspect it if they do have symptoms that are concerning, um, you know, in childhood. More and more these days um, in haemophilia treatment centres in in Australia um, are confirming, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, all haemophilia treatment centres in Australia are confirming diagnosis with genetic testing. Um, that has that has various implications for treatment going forward. But, um, you know, I think that more and more it's becoming a, a disease of, you know, that, of molecular genetics um, rather than the you know standard investigations that we used to do 20 years ago. Uh, Nick, thanks for joining the podcast. Before you leave, we also have medical students listening in. Some might be interested in following your path. Bleeding disorders as an interest for you, a specialisation, what led you down that path? Because you've already confessed to me Dracula wasn't a big figure in your past. What is it? Oh, well, look, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess it's an area that... Um, you know, at, when I was a medical student, it was it was an area that was, um, you know, somewhat confusing, I guess. And I guess I've always been drawn to, you know, try and figure out why things occur and you know the mechanisms behind certain things. Um, I think it's always it's always interesting to be a um, subspecialist in a particular area where your knowledge may be greater than, uh, you know, other people out there. Um, you know, I find it I find it quite fascinating. I mean, I think it I think it incorporates. Um, you know, uh, aspects of uh, hematology and also aspects of clinical genetics as well. And so, you know, it's a, it's a diverse sort of area and, and quite interesting. Um, I, I also like sort of, you know, looking after people for long periods of time. I enjoy managing chronic diseases and, you know, th- these are by definition chronic diseases that sort of require input over time. So, Dr. Nick Miles, thank you very much. No worries. And Travis, thank you. Yet another episode. I wasn't sure how long this one I thought was going to be like getting blood out of a stone, but it, uh, we've, we've brought it home safely. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au. And you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. 
Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there, and we'd love to have you along.